Hey everybody, I'm Anna McEwen. And now for Bob Switzer with the epic narrative. Well, if you've been paying attention to home, then you know that last week we finished chapter 49. And this week we are on chapter 50 of the book of Genesis, which means this is the last episode. What? It's true. It's true. My engineer's like, finally, I can get a day off. Well, we got to start working on season on season three. We got to start working on Genesis on Exodus. I'm telling you right now, Bob. We are. We are. We have got to get to studying Exodus. Is Exodus is you know complicated? We got all kinds of of uh, stuff to to deal with in Exodus, but. Be that as as it may, we are going to finish Genesis today. Now, uh, Genesis 50 is, I guess, technically kind of a depressing uh, chapter because it's all uh, death. Jacob dies, right? Well, he died in the end of chapter 49. He it says he you know he curled his feet up on the bed and and passed away. Some believe he did it as soon as he was done blessing the children. I understand that you know from a from a movie's perspective that's kind of sweet and and dramatic. He blesses all of his children. They're they're old men as well, right? They're, it's not like they're just all seventeen years old. They're old men. They're they're probably in their forties or fifties. But for me, that's that's fairly old. I mean, I guess, uh, but I guess not. I mean, if Jacob lived to be what was it, a hundred and Hundred and whatever, fifty, hundred seventy. He was old, so I guess when you're, if you're going to live to one hundred seventy-five and you're fifty, you're really not that. You're not even middle age yet. So, bottom line is, he blesses his kids. They all, they all get their blessing, and then he curls up and dies. And and it says that Joseph came and threw himself on his father, and he wept over him and kissed him. Now, some believe that this means that he was literally there when his father drew his last breath, that he was the closest child to his father's uh, side when he died, which could be true. Others say that's just what he did when when he got there, and that it doesn't mean that the other brothers didn't do this. It's just noted that Joseph did it, that he threw himself on his father and and wept and kissed and just was devastated by the death of his father. So Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm uh, his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, and that takes forty days. And for that, for that was the time required. And the Egyptians mourned for seventy days. And when the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court. Well, let's let's just pause there for a minute. Okay, so the embalming happens. Now, uh, that happened because, of course, Joseph is still uh, viceroy uh, to Pharaoh and clearly could embalm whomever he wanted. And that occurs, but uh, it's also an honor to be embalmed. And that's shown not only by the embalming that occurred, but also the 70 days of mourning. The people of Egypt honored Jacob for raising Joseph. They honored him because they recognized that Joseph wasn't, you know, didn't appear out of nowhere. Joseph came from a family uh, 
And even though Joseph might have arrived in Egypt as a slave, they recognized the hand of God on Joseph, his spiritual connection, and they recognized that he got this through his father, through a heritage. And that's, that speaks volumes uh, for me because I believe many of us have lost that, that heritage mindset. We are so uh, quick to be... Um, to dismiss our, our heritage because, because a lot of us just want to be independent. We want to be known. We want to be famous. We want to be the, the headline. We don't want to share the, the representation of what we've accomplished with anyone. And sometimes, I, I get it, some fathers are horrible. I get that. I do. Jacob was not a good father. We've dealt with this before. He, he was not a good dad. He, he had some major issues when it came to raising children, but Joseph and, and I believe the rest of his brothers and the nation of, of Egypt did find the good in, in Jacob, and they honored that. And it, that is the point of honor, right? That is what you're supposed to do. When you honor someone, which is what the Bible says we should do with our parents, honor our father and our mother, the point is not that we just ignore stuff. It's that we find the gold and we focus on it. And you can do that with anything in life. You can show honor in anything in life. Some of you might have hated your education. You hated the school your mother sent you, your parents sent you to, or your mother sent you to. You you hated the church that you went to. You hated you hated the um, you know the job that you that you have. Whatever. But there are things that you can look back on in honor. You can say, you know what? I might not ever recommend anybody go back there, but I do know this: they gave me an appreciation for whatever. And you honor the gold. We, we often tell people, listen, anybody can find dirt and pile it up. You can pile dirt on people. You can find dirt on people and pile it up. off. You can focus on the dirt. Anybody can do that. That doesn't take a whole lot of skill to dig dirt, but it does take a, a focus. It does take a skill, a self-discipline to honor people, to look at them and say, well, this is what I did get. This is what I do. This is how I did benefit from them. This is, this is how how I see them. This is what I remember about them. I mean, sometimes my mom will will be like, "Bob, I wasn't I wasn't as good of a mom as I could be." And bless her heart, you know, my mom's uh, over fifty. <laughs> Engineers like Bob, you're over fifty. I know, I know, I am. I'm not going to give my mother's age out, but she's over 50, right? And so, bless her heart, she keeps learning. My mom reads. My mom listens to things. She's always increasing. I tell you, she is an example to me to this day. I remember all good things from my childhood. She was an awesome mother. But every so often, she'll read something, and she'll be like, oh, my gosh, I was not a good mother. I, I didn't do that right. And she'll, she'll call me or I'll call her and she'll be like, you know, Bob, uh, I'm really sorry I wasn't a good mom. I'll be like, Mom, I don't, I, you literally, I don't even remember this. I, I don't remember you being a bad mom ever. 
All I have is good memories from my childhood. I had a great time being a me as a child. I, I look at me as a child, and I don't know how you survived as a mother. Why, why, how am I still alive? I must have drove this poor woman crazy with the way that I, I'm hyperactive, enthusiastic, over-the-top, loud. To this day, I can't whisper. I try. I really do. My wife teases me sometimes still. She'd be like, he's, he's trying to whisper. I'd be like, I am whispering. She'd be like, no, no, you're not. I, I am. And I, I, in my heart of hearts, I know I am. And I really believe I'm speaking softer than I've ever spoken before. And my wife is like, it's still loud. So I think it's almost like I'm always on stage. I have like a stage whisper when I whisper. <laughs> oh, glory. Anyways, my poor mom, I, not poor mom. She's an awesome mom. But I just, I bring that all up to say, you can honor, you can always find things to honor about people. And there were things about Jacob that are not honorable. I get that. He was not a great dad. Um, but in the end, Joseph, Joseph lifted him up in such a way that all the brothers started to appreciate what they had in him as a father. And the nation of Egypt appreciated what they what Joseph had in him as a father and what this family was doing for them as a nation just again just to remind everyone they they showed up there and took on the responsibility of being herdsmen and shepherds for the livestock of all of Canaan and all of Egypt without which the wealth of Egypt would have eventually been depleted but they saved it so not only did Joseph save them with food, but his family saved them with riches. Now, granted, the Hebrews were also enriched and expanding and multiplying, but they understood that at some level, Jacob had a part in all that. And they honored him. They mourned him for 70 days. Uh, when the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, so Joseph it's, it's just significant. He didn't go directly to Pharaoh. He had the right to. He was viceroy. He had the right to talk to Pharaoh directly about just about anything except for this. Now, the, the tradition says that he went through, one, through the queen. He, as, a, as a viceroy, he can't just leave the country. He can't just walk away and say, I'll be back. Like, yeah, I know our politicians go on vacation all the time, you know, and <laughs> Do you remember during COVID? Oh, so many of those politicians who came from really strict states would like vacation in the in the in the freedom states or whatever they were called, and then they'd get photographed at a party or whatever, and then they had to explain them. It was it was kind of funny, but or you know our presidents go on weekend junkets to their hometown or to their beach house in the vineyard or to their their beach house in Florida, like whatever. Like there's just all kinds of places that they go or or travel to go on vacation to to get away. Camp David was a big thing when I was a kid. The, the presidents would go to Camp David, which I think was not that far from D.C., but it was considered to be kind of a more relaxed atmosphere. Uh, Truman, right, the little White House down in, uh, down in Key West was known for years as a place where not just Truman but others would go. So kind of getting out of Dodge and relaxing was not something you could do in Egypt. 
he couldn't just say, hey, I'm going to go bury my dad because he wanted to be buried next to his father and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. <clears throat> no, no, no. <clears throat> he had to get permission, excuse me, <clears throat> from the Pharaoh for that to occur. And he couldn't ask Pharaoh directly because that would have been considered uh, pressuring Pharaoh. So he had to go through the courts. So he went through the court and he and he's like, "My, to please tell him, my father made me swear an oath. I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father as I promised, and I will return. Now, uh, when Pharaoh receives this information, when he when the queen, who we think is who uh, Joseph used to to make this request, he's he has to. Uh, he has to weigh the balance on this. Joseph is an immigrant. And the longer that we're out of the famine, the more that that becomes apparent. People want Joseph's job. People want Joseph's influence and authority. They start chipping away at it. They want a little bit of it. They, they, they think they have a better plan on how to bring about the riches and how to use um, you know, the riches. And yet Pharaoh has a pretty big appreciation for what Joseph did. And, you know, Joseph didn't suddenly get stupid after the, after the famine. He's a very wise counselor, but he is an immigrant. And there is a chance that when an immigrant goes back to their hometown and their home uh, land, they're not coming back. Pharaoh knows if, if Joseph decides to stay a week, two weeks, a month, three months, if he starts to establish his family's business there again, if the families travel with him to, to bury, the, bury the father, there's a good chance that our whole livestock system and the breeding that's occurring will, will go into disarray. And I, I, you know, I have to remember this. These are things that the Pharaoh has to keep in mind. Now, now, uh, it's interesting, I think, in the way that the conditions that the Pharaoh says. He's like, all right, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. Now, Pharaoh understood the, when, he, when, when Joseph said, I have made an oath, I had to swear an oath. He understands that this is not like, hey, when you get a chance, bring me up to the tomb and bury me with my father. It was, it was an oath. And to ask Joseph... To not fulfill that oath to his father could be a spiritual detriment to Pharaoh because he could enact in, in, in what he would consider the, you know, the wrath of Joseph's God for not allowing Joseph to fulfill the oath. So all of this comes in. He's like, all right, go up and do it just like you swore you would. Uh, but the court is coming with you. So in other words, all these people that wanted Joseph's job wouldn't be around Pharaoh to beg Pharaoh for Joseph's job while Joseph was gone. They're all going to be gone as well. I think that's kind of funny and, and politically brilliant. He's like, I'm going to send all these people with you in honor of your father. But also it alleviates political pressure from Pharaoh the whole time he's gone. And Pharaoh 
understands that. And so does Joseph. I have a feeling Joseph probably smiled and maybe even maybe rolled his eyes. It was like, oh, this is this. That was brilliant, Pharaoh. Well played. And he goes, uh, all the, of course, your whole household can go. Your brothers can go. Um, and those belonging to your father's household can go. So his servants and any of the other people that were around that wanted to go. But your brother's children can't go, and none of the flocks or herds can go with you. So even their personal flocks, even their personal, um, uh, what do I want to say, livestock, they all had to stay behind, and all their sons had to stay behind, all their children, sons, daughters, so Pharaoh thought that was a pretty good indicator that these guys were going to come back and go back to work. And he said, I'm going to send you with chariots, which were basically the tanks of the day. I'm going to send you with horsemen, which would have been like the cavalry and the ability to, to protect his entire court is going with them, right? There's a lot of pride and a lot of arrogance and a lot of showmanship on this journey. There's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of divas on this trip that want to look good and feel good the whole sweaty three weeks on the road. So there, this is, this is a pretty large party. This is a pretty long parade. This is, uh, this is going to take a while. So they work whatever, three weeks, three and a half weeks. They, they work their way, uh, all the way up. The Canaanites, it says, uh, they reached the threshing floor of Atad, or at Atad, I don't know how to say these things. You know this already if you listen to me. Uh, they're near Jordan. They lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. So they've already mourned in the, in the country for 70 days. But Joseph is now setting his own uh, personal mourning time. He's in his homeland. He's where he was before he was sold into slavery. There's a lot of emotion here. And for seven days, he sits. And the Canaanites who lived there, of course, saw what was going on, right? You, you, can't, you can't get around this parade. The Calvary's there. There's tanks that have surrounded them. There's colorful tents all over the place. There's now food that needs to be brought in. There's all kinds of activity. And they, they see that the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony. And they, they named it a special name so that everybody would know this is a place of mourning. And they carried him to the land of, of Canaan and they buried him in the cave of where he was supposed to be. Again, the names, the names are, are bizarre to me. Uh, and after burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury. So everything went according to Pharaoh's desires and according to Joseph's plan. Now, I want to talk to you briefly about tra this a traditional oral tradition. Now, I've done this often in the epic narrative, and I usually try to set it aside so that you know that you're not going to be able to find a verse for this. But I want you to know that, that this, is a, uh, this is out there. And I find it fascinating because there's nothing about it that is, like, I think wrong or evil. There's nothing about it that's, that would have been um, you know, that, that when these oral traditions are usually what, what is known to be brought in by the rabbis that have been 
remembered for thousands of years, they fill in the blanks between the highlights of the verses. When you read the Bible, the Bible was written to be spoken as a, as a narrative. And it was designed to be discussed and interacted with around as a story so that you could remember all the details. It was written as highlights, as bullet points, as don't forget these things. These are key issues, key points, key characteristics that need to be remembered in a greater narrative. And we try and do that here on the Epic Narrative. I try and give you the, the, the bigger story and the, and the nuances of the culture that's going on around these words that are written. And one of the things, of course, that goes on here is, is uh, the opportunity we all take, I hope we all take, to have these discussions internally, at least. So one of the, the, the traditions is during the seven days of mourning, <clears throat> that Esau showed up. Now that would have made sense, right? That's his that's you know his relative, a forefather. Uh, that's uh, that's his brother. Like this would have made sense to me. Esau showed up and he disputes Jacob's right to be buried in the cave because Jacob left the country and has lived now for close to 20 years in Egypt. Esau is also disputing this because he's the firstborn son. And even though Jacob was blessed with the firstborn blessing from, from, es from, uh, from Isaac, Esau... Everyone knew Esau was the firstborn son. Remember, Esau ran the family for the 20 years that, that um, Jacob was with Laban. And now he's run the family again for the 20 years that Jacob's been in, in Egypt. So Esau is disputing Jacob's right to be in the cave. It says that, that uh, he disputed it because he said no one... That no one has the the deed for the cave. No one, no one, you know, that can't be produced. And as 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 the only son now that's alive, it's his right to protect the cave. So it says that Naphtali, now if you remember last week's uh blessings, Naphtali was the courier tribe, the ones that were going to deliver information. It says that Naphtali got up and ran back to Egypt. And got and returned within the seven days. That's how fast Nap the, the tribe of Naphtali was known to be. Now that, that takes some focused activity to make that run in seven days. So he shows up to get and brings the deed. Esau continued to argue at the mouth of the cave, and it says that he was <laughs> it turned into it turned it violent. And someone actually decapitated Esau in the front of the cave, and it says his head rolled into the cave and landed at the foot of Jacob's coffin, and he was just left there. Now, I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's kind of a cool story. That's something that I think if someone made a movie, right, they would probably put that in because it's kind of a cool little story. And there would be people, Christians, who'd be like, that's not in the Bible, they're making things up. You can't go see that movie. That's a terrible movie. Bad thing. They came up with bad things. I know. I know. But sometimes, you know, these traditions are 
held onto tightly by large groups of people. And they do kind of add cool things to the story. So I don't know if that happened or not, but I just I just was like, you know what? I'm actually going to tell that whole story because I think that's kind of cool. So who knows? Who knows? Have fun with it. Do what you want with it. Uh, we'll, we're we're going to continue. So Jacob dies. Life has to move on. Uh, they, they went back home. Everybody goes back home. Now, one of the things that, again, traditionally is said that Joseph... Joseph stopped the family the family uh, meals at the at at the end of every week or at the beginning of every week on Friday night. I don't know that again if that's true or not, but um, he did not want to sit at the head of the table, so he did not want to have the family meals. So it was up to the other brothers if they wanted to get together. Now the brothers. They were worried. It says when, when uh, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that his father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds the grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? It's fascinating, right? After all these years, all the provision, all the forgiveness, all the, all the restoration that occurred when he revealed himself to his brothers, you remember how intense that those hours were that they spent in Joseph's home. And then the subsequent years of interaction and blessing that Joseph brought to them. When dad's, when the dad dies, when they finally bury him, they start to wonder. And I'm guessing this conversation started on their way home. What do you think Joseph's going to do? Do you think he's going to kill us? Do you think he's going to enslave us? Do you think he's, he's going to take all the good stuff away from us now that we are foreigners in the land that he oversees? So they came up with a plan. They said, uh, let's send a message to him. Your, your father told us to tell you this before he died. <laughs> I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs that they've committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your fathers. When the message came to him, Joseph cried. Why did he cry? I think he cried because he thought this was so unnecessary. This is not what dad's like. I think he recognized right away. This is, this is coming from a stream of fear and the guilt is still in them. And unfortunately that's just sad. And I think Joseph recognized that. And he was like, Oh, and he just cried and his brothers came to him, and they threw themselves down, and they said, we are your slaves. Do whatever you want with us. And Joseph said, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? I mean, that's, that's amazing. He has an opportunity here. He could have done anything, and he completely steps away from the control that they're trying to give him. Now, there's a lot of people in a lot of ministries all around the world that cannot give up control, let alone refuse to take control when people try to give it to them. There are a lot of pastors on an individual level when somebody comes and, in essence, bows before them and says, please control my life. There's a lot of pastors and a lot of ministry leaders who go, all right, here's what you need to do. And they, they take control of the people's lives. And, and I've seen the abuses that occurred. I've been in ministry a long time. It is not, it's, it's not pretty. It's, it's sad 
It's sad the way that ministry leaders and pastors control people's lives. It's unfortunate the way that people's lives, you know, they they bring their lives before these ministry leaders and tell them control me and the and and somehow the you know, the pastors will look at them and think this must be, you know, God must have given me I'm the shepherd. God must have given me this sheep and now I get to control this sheep and I get to tell this sheep what to do and who they should marry and how they should behave, how long their hair should be, if they should take a job, if they should quit their job, if they should leave their spouse. Like all of this becomes places of ego and pride for the ministry leader because so many ministries have been set up to say, you need to follow me, I'm the leader, rather than we need to encourage each other to follow the Lord. And there is a huge difference in the way a ministry is led when you switch that paradigm. And I think I kind of went off of, off the rails a little bit. Bob, Bob, Bob's in the engineer booth looking at me going, you know, what you said isn't wrong or bad, but, but um, on with the story. That's right, on with the story. He's like, I'm not in the place of God. Listen, once again... I understand what you intended was to harm me. I get that. But God's goodness always overrides what, what's going on. His goodness is not controlled by circumstances. It is not controlled by people's choices. His goodness never leaves. God never leaves. He can never leave. He can never leave. His goodness is always there because he is always there and he is always good. So what you meant for good, God accomplished, or what you meant for evil, God accomplished good stuff with it. Look at what's being done. How many lives have been saved because of of the fact that I'm down here? Not because God wanted me down here, but because his goodness showed up when I did. Because he cannot leave and he is always good. He's like, don't be afraid. I'm going to continue to provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and he spoke kindly with them. But tradition says that they still, he never came to the family meetings or gatherings after that. He always let them have the family gatherings because, you know, he had a title and he had a power and he had authority and, and he had riches. And for him to show up at those family meetings, he would have automatically been put in a place of leadership. And he knew that the Lord, that, that Jacob had blessed Judah to lead the family. And if he showed up, and even if Judah sat at the head of the table, if Joseph was at the table, eventually everything would have went quiet. They would have wanted to know, what does Joseph think? And whatever he said, they probably would have complied to because they would have said, well, he is the viceroy, and we did sell him into slavery and make him vow never to contact us again. Like there was, that's what Joseph is seeing. He's like, I can't, I can't, I can't let this happen. I need the family to come together. My sons are now brothers in the family. My sons can go to the family meetings. But I can't. I mean, it's kind of sad, but at some level, Joseph ends up being alone, even though he's part of the family. And it says that Joseph stayed in Egypt along with his, his father's family, and he lived to 110 years. And he saw the third generation of Ephraim's children also the children of Machre, the son of Manasseh, were placed at a birth, at birth, at, at Joseph's knees. So his son's son, 
his children were on the knees of Joseph for blessings, which I think is just a really cool thing. And Joseph said to his brothers, listen, I'm about to die. He probably sent a message or he called them in. He goes, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land that he promised an oath to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath to him. He said, God will surely come to your aid and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110 and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. And then we head into Exodus and the transition that occurs not right away when Joseph uh, dies, but a few generations later, I have no doubt Joseph knew the potential of what was happening. Joseph knew that without him there, there was, there was going to be political pressure to bring the Israelites, the Hebrews, into a place of servitude like Joseph had done to all the other Egyptians and all the other Canaanites. There was going to be some level of political payback that was going to be necessary. And Joseph knew that that they were going to have to uh, rely on the goodness of God to come through for them. And they were going to have to leave Egypt. And he's like, when you leave, I don't want to be buried here. Now, remember, he's it, when he says he's speaking to his brothers, it means he's also speaking to two of his sons, the only two sons he had. He's like, take me with you. Don't leave me here. I understand the, the greatness of Egypt. I, I've, you know, I've seen the way that they honor their pharaohs and their, and their leaders. I know I could have a beautiful tomb created for myself. And, and you know, years from now, archaeologists would find it and be like, oh my gosh, this is filled with treasures of, of untold wealth because uh, I am Joseph and I have it. But I don't want it. That is not what I want to be known for. I am a son of Jacob, and I am from the the you know the promised land, and that's where I want to be buried. Well, I hope, if nothing else, we see again this rhythm that always draws us back to the beginning. Joseph reminds his brothers of the goodness of God. Joseph calls out the goodness of God to release his brothers from the land of Egypt. Joseph understands that everything comes from the beginning. And in the beginning is goodness and light and love and hope and joy and peace. And although there is mystery in the light of the, of the beginning, it is designed to be revealed. And in that revelation, more light is released, more wisdom, more love, more joy, more peace, more hope. This is the culture that the children of God are designed to spread throughout the world. And it's the culture of a good God who is good all through time. This, this culture is one that I hope, as you listen to the epic narrative, you become encouraged to become more connected to. Connected not to chapter 3, when Adam and Eve, or man and woman, ate the fruit, but connected to chapter 1, verse 1, where in and out of the beginning God created, because you are God's creation. 
and you came out of the beginning. And that is what the life of Jesus shows us, What's what the life can look like when somebody understands their identity and their origin. So if nothing else, I hope you enjoyed the story, but I also pray and hope that this story allows you to explore your identity and expand your understanding of the light and goodness of God and and start releasing more of it in the communities and families in which you live. Have a fabulous day, and thanks again for listening to The Epic Narrative. I will see you next season. And until then, (laughs) have a fabulous day, everyone. Don't go anywhere. We've got Bob Thoughts. Oh, man. Can you believe this season's over? What a ride. Every so often, I think, like, back to, like, when we did stuff on the Nephilim and we did stuff on the, on the you know, the Flood and on Cain and Abel and, you know, how many creation stories there are or aren't are in the first few chapters. I Like, I think, good grief, it seems like years ago. But it was just a mere 60 or so episodes ago. 65 if you go all the way back to the beginning when we talked about God and creation coming out of this place called the beginning. And wow, just thanks for thanks for hanging out for the ride. That was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, today's episode, what probably for me, the thing that I bounced back to is that the last part of Joseph's life, how kind of separated he was from his family. You know, sometimes sometimes in your life, you can do everything right. Uh, and I know, I know Joseph was deceptive and manipulating in his own way, coming up with his plan. Like I said, I think he kind of winged it. I don't think God was a part of all of that deception because I don't think God is ever a part of deception. But... Even even as it all ended, he he connected with his brothers. He he reunited the family. He you know gave them wealth and influence and affluence and political uh, you know power, all that stuff. Like he really elevated and united the family. His father blesses the children. He blesses Joseph. He he really you know he he did it all and he did it right. And yet still on the way home from the funeral, the brothers are like. But now, now that dad's dead, now that he's buried, now it's going to be trouble. Now he's coming after us. And even then, Joseph had to assure them, no, I'm not going to. And, and in the end, he just couldn't, uh, he couldn't fully reunite relationally, engage with his family again. So I, I think sometimes, you know, you can do... You can do everything right with your with your family. You can you and again, I know he didn't do everything right, but you can you can endeavor to do everything right. You can you can lay down all the foundations of humility and love and kindness and uh, forgiveness, uh, not holding anything back. Uh, and in doing all that, your family may still decide not to fully re-engage with you. And I think that's really what Joseph understood. It was like, all right, I'm just, I can't. Uh, you know, if I show up 
things are different. If I show up, people act different. They get weird. They get nervous. Uh, my sons will be treated differently if I'm there. And uh, that just, I don't know, that was just something for me to think about, something I thought I'd pass on to you in, in these final thoughts. Uh, yeah. And then I want you to know, I'm really, I really, I think you're going to enjoy Exodus. We uh, are really going to dive into, I think anyways, one of the main themes we'll look at is uh, getting slavery, that slavery mindset out of a person is really difficult because slavery is a very comfortable and uh, easy place to live. And you get to always be the victim, which means nothing is ever your fault, which means you have no responsibility, which means it's an easy uh, place to live. So we'll talk a lot about that. I think, I think slavery mindsets impact people's lives way more than we'd like to admit. And uh, we deal with, again, very traditionally viewed positions regarding the law of God. Most of Exodus is really about the law of God. It's, uh, you know, when I first started it, I thought there were all kinds of story times in there, kind of like Genesis, and it's really not. It's, it's really about the law of God. And so we look at it from a narrative perspective and from the perspective that God is good and did he really, did he really say what the English says he says? Or are there other ways to approach this? And I, I think we do a good job of wrestling with it. I, I know that, I do know that this good God concept is very difficult for people to hang on to all the time. And so I just always ask, hey, will you consider that this could be true? Would you consider that God has actually been good and that maybe man influenced the way God was perceived? And and that's what we that's the way we approach this whole thing. But uh, I don't I think it'll probably go a year. I'm guessing we'll have about 50 episodes or so uh, of the Book of Exodus, just based on uh, my notes. But uh, either way, I think you'll enjoy the year. Uh, meanwhile, I know as as we go along, uh, there's a few other things I hope to do uh, with season one. I want to possibly put together a, uh, a, a study guide to go with season one to kind of maybe open up that to small group study or personal study to dive in a little deeper into the life of David. And of course, we'll prepare for season four. Not sure what that's going to be yet. Uh, I mean, it makes sense to kind of go Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, whatever, but I may, I may not. Um, we, may, we may go after other things. I don't know. You know what? Stay tuned to the epic narrative and you'll be the first to find out. Have a great day, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.